The Chattanooga family of shockwave therapy devices bring deep tissue treatments in less time, with less effort and greater patient comfort. Built around proven penetrating acoustic wave technology, Chattanooga offers treatment solutions that can reach up to 12.5 centimeters below the skin, making even the deepest causes of pain treatable and resolvable. Whether you're a growing clinic needing a versatile solution or a large sports medicine center that demands the best in recovery, Chattanooga has a therapy solution to get your patients moving. Learn more at djoglobal.com slash shockwave therapy. Clinical studies and device indications available upon request. Individual results may vary. Neither DJO LLC nor any of its subsidiaries dispense medical advice. Consult your healthcare professional for advice. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we are sitting down with Dr. Rob Landell, Director of the DPT and Residency Programs at the University of Southern California, to talk about concussion, evaluation, and treatment. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. Dr. Rob Landell is a professor of clinical physical therapy at USC, where he is the director of the residential pathway of the DPT program and director of clinical residency and fellowship programs. He is a board-certified orthopedic specialist, a certified strength and conditioning specialist, and a Catherine Worthingham Fellow of the APTA. Rob, it is fantastic to have you on JOSPT Insights. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I'm really honored that you asked me. I'm part of a team that published this CPG, and I'm really honored that they're allowing me off the leash to talk to you all today. <laughs> all right. We got Rob Reppin, the whole concussion CPG author group here. Rob, I know you want to shout out your awesome colleagues. Go for it. So I, I really want to give a shout out to my co-authors. So Katie Quatman Yates, who was the primary author, did a, a ton of work and a lot of the heavy lifting and writing the uh, CPG up. And Ariel Hunter Giordano was our organizer and kept us on task all, at all times. Bara Al-Salahin, who has done a lot of seminal work in, in uh, concussion rehab. Tim Hankey was our process expert. And K-Mac, Karen McCullough, was another one of our content experts that really led the way. And then in particular, Kathy she, uh, Kumagai Shimamura, who unfortunately we, we lost just a few weeks ago, suddenly and unexpectedly. She was an incredible individual and you know we all loved her dearly and miss her dearly. She was one of those people that just would light up the room when she'd walk in and no matter how bad things were going for you, she's the kind of person that just you know would make you forget all that and make it all go away. So uh, we miss her terribly, but works like this that she was involved in keep her memory alive. Thanks so Thank much you, for, for bringing that up, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity. So we are looking at JOSPT from April 2020, the article, Physical Therapy Evaluation and Treatment After Concussion Slash Mild Traumatic Brain Injury, Clinical Practice Guidelines. And this bad boy is a beaut, all 75 pages of her. So for those, I'm sure there's just like a couple, just a couple people who haven't read through the whole thing. Um, are you, Rob, able to provide a skeleton outline of all that great info? 
And just quick, for those who haven't read it, there's actually just a wonderful chart at the end that kind of sums up all of the findings into like a decision-making flow chart. But for the sake of the podcast, Rob, can you just summarize that for us really simply? You know, if you suspect there's a concussive event, what do you do? And the first thing you need to do is screen for any emergency medical conditions or your red flags. You know, we, we sort of have a list of things that you want to go through. And if you identify anything that's really urgent, boom, you know, refer them out. So this would be first and worst headache, worsening neurologic signs, obviously declining consciousness, things like that. So we'll get them out to the uh, emergency medical treatment. But if none of those are going on, then we look for indicators of concussion. And in this sense, what I'm talking about with concussion is really the, the brain injury part of it. So oftentimes, of course, we'll find that parts of what the patient presents with are in a physical therapist's domain. And there are going to be many other things that aren't. And we're going to have to also figure out how to, you know, what those things are and then get the patient to the appropriate healthcare provider. Just clarify something. So when we're determining if someone is appropriate for physical therapy care, is that any different from anybody else coming in if, if they didn't even have a concussive event? Is there any, are there any unique characteristics that we need to consider when someone has a concussive event that uh, wouldn't be the same as if someone would just be coming in for, for neck pain? The issue of this uh, multi-system involvement and, the, and therefore requiring a multidisciplinary approach is, is what makes managing these patients so difficult because they're, they're complicated, right? If you had someone who came in who had suffered a whiplash injury acutely, I mean, boom, crash outside your door, and then they show up, hey, I was in a car accident 10 minutes ago, that's the neck thing. You're going to go through your you know, your examination to make sure that they're appropriate, there are no red flags. So you're going to do that, but you're, but you're also doing red flags for any brain injury, cardiac red flags across these multiple uh, systems. So, so that's what makes it complicated. But then all those intersect and overlap in the sense that, you know, the, the patient may be having a headache. Well, okay, is this, is this a first and worst kind of red flag headache? Or is this a migraine? Or is this a cervicogenic headache? So is this coming from the brain injury? Is this coming from a bleed? Is this coming from... It's sort of sorting through that and determining for each one of those, is the patient appropriate? It sounds like it requires us to just be much more thorough because we have to screen through these multiple systems. I, I think that's a good way to summarize it, yeah. Okay, so now back to our skeleton outline. So we've determined that they're appropriate. Now, where do we go from there? So the patient comes in, we know they're in our wheelhouse. What do we do with them now? And, and we identified these four domains. And so the assessment process and the flowchart that we go through takes you through those domains, but we think in a, in a logical fashion. One of the first places we start is at the neck. The literature suggests that a concussion, the amount of force required for a concussion or associated with a concussion is around 100 Gs. And yet a uh, neck sprain is about four and a half Gs. So that's one of the reasons why we look at the neck, but also any of our interventions that we're working on will stress the neck. So we want to make sure that range of motion is good there, strength is good there, the proprioception is good there, and so on. So we're looking for those mus cervical musculoskeletal impairments. Also, we know that early neck pain is a risk factor for chronic neck pain. And so dealing with that 
right off the bat early on is also going to help us out. So, um, so that first step. And the next step was we look at dizziness and or headaches. And we're looking at whether they're having a dizziness at rest or with movement, headaches with rest or with movement. And so we're examining for the, the cervical musculoskeletal domain, and then we're examining for the vestibular oculomotor domain. And from there, then we go into autonomic exertional intolerance and then the motor function, which is balance and dual task kinds of activities and things like that. So more functional kinds of impairments. These domains overlap quite a bit. However, can you touch on the salient aspects of each and your thought process as to what types of patient complaints typically raise your suspicion towards one domain or another? The things that tend to push you in one direction or another or say, hey, some of these symptoms have to be coming from this domain. For example, if the neck pain and the dizziness co-vary, so when I move my neck, that's when I get dizzy. Then you can look at, well, hold the head still and move the neck. Does that make you dizzy? Yes, it does. That sounds like the dizziness is being caused, at least in part, by the neck movement. If your headaches improve when you turn the lights down, that sounds like photophobia. That sounds like migraines. That sounds like maybe more related to the brain injury. If you have double vision, and the double vision is worse when your head is moving. That sounds like oscillopsia. Sounds like a problem with VOR. Then let's go look at the vestibular motor system. For the ex- exertional intolerance, if they're um, unable to do the buffalo treadmill test, or I think a better test is, is the uh, bicycle test, that suggests exertional intolerance. Okay, what gets worse with that? My, my headaches get worse with that. And it co-varies with your vital signs. So as your heart, your rate, rate pressure product changes, that's when your symptoms get worse. And it seems to be pretty reproducible at a, at a rate pressure product. Okay. Sounds like it's an exertional intolerance issue. So there, there are things like that that will lead you in, in one direction or the other. And so you're more likely to get the multiple system involvement than any single one. Ooh, I like these four domains. There are times when attempts to simplify processes can make it even more complicated, but it seems like this provides a solid framework to organized findings. Concussions can come with these multitude of impairments, which can be pretty overwhelming when determining where to start or even if we're even able to help all of them. But being able to separate each of these many impairments into one of four buckets, these domains, makes it more manageable to then focus on intervention strategies for one bucket at a time. Putting them in those buckets, I think, really helps to try to clean things out and direct your efforts for that day, for that session. The other thing I think it's really important, and we, and we do make a point of this, is that because it is multidisciplinary or a multi-system problem, it takes a multidisciplinary approach. But this is a condition where you need to be a specialist in multiple areas, right? It would be very helpful if you were a strong musculoskeletal physio, right? And it could manage the C-spine. You're a strong neurophysio and you can manage the brain injury. You're a vestibular therapist and you manage the vestibular ocular stuff. And the thing about the buckets is that, okay, today I'm good at musculoskeletal. But if I'm going to be treating this, I need to work on this bucket. I need to get better at this bucket. And then I get better at that. Okay, now I can attack this bucket. So it's also a way to think about how you progress your career and uh, progress your skill level, knowledge, and so on as you go through to, to be more of more value to your patients. 
For those looking to improve their clinical exam work, what objective testing should people really be focusing on to, to help dial in and place patients into one or more of these, these four buckets and improve their treatments moving forward? You have to know how to identify those red flags we talked about. But beyond that, you, you need to be strong in your neurologic exam. Neurologic screening, you know, dermatome, myotome, and uh, reflexes is not good enough. You, you need to know your cranial nerve exam, and you need to know your your abnormal reflexes. And in particular, when you get a cranial nerve exam, now that leads into your vestibular uh, examination. And so in being strong in, in being able to identify vestibular ocular deficits is going to be really important. So that that would include your oculomotor exam. I, I think it's 18%, let's say one out of five patients who have BPPV have trauma in their history, right? So should at least know how to identify and manage BPPV. But for a lot of these folks, you also have some, uh, you know, a, a, a peripheral figuring out if it's a peripheral vestibular or a central peripheral, uh, central vestibular problem. You should know how to do an exertional test, so whether it's a, a treadmill or the or the bike test, and obviously vitals, you know those are important. And taking vitals while someone is exercising is it is a skill. It's a unique skill, but you know while someone's you know walking on a treadmill and getting a good blood pressure is is important. And then on on, on the other side of things in terms of examination, things like being able to do a VOMS, being able to do a you know a good DHI a disease handicap in, inventory. You know, those tests are also important to be able to do well. Rob, does that kind of wrap up the evaluation part? The the big meaty things that you made it, you wanted to make sure that people learned about the CPG. I think the other thing to talk about is we talk about irritability. Determining the irritability is important because uh, during the exam, it will tell you how aggressive you can be during the exam. And then during intervention, it'll tell you how aggressive you can be, you know, that day or, or maybe that minute within the, within that treatment sessions, because things can change. What makes you worse? What's the aggravating factor? When you get worse, how much worse do you get? And when you're worse, how long does that last? What can you do to ease it? So what are the easing factors? If you don't do anything to ease it, how long will it go? But if you ease this, uh, if you do this, what is that that will ease it? And then how quickly will it ease uh, when you've applied that? So uh, a good example of that in the vestibular world is you can get dizzy relatively easy and then, and then have it go away. But once you bring on nausea, the nausea takes longer to bring on and then it stays much longer. It's harder to get rid of. So uh, less reactive, but doesn't ease very quickly. And so at least in my practice, I try not to make people nauseated. I'm okay making them dizzy to a certain extent, of course, but I, you know, as soon as they say I'm starting to get nauseated, okay, I'm going to go, we'll go do something else because I don't want to stir that up. So it's important to think about and determine irritability in the evaluation so that we can it can help us guide our interventions. So what kind of guidelines are we using to when we choose our interventions based on that irritability? What, how much do we want to push that? In, in, and maybe that changes by domain. It changes by domain. And I'm glad you brought that up because you have to have, there's an irritability for each bucket and then each symptom within each bucket, within each domain. So for example, how's your headache right now? It's a three out of five. So uh, a three out of 10. 
And so let's, let's have you, you know, do a little bit of walking. Okay. Now it's a five out of 10. All right. Well, it took you five minutes to get to five out of 10. Let's, let's stop. Let's see and wait for it to come back down. But you know what? But while I was walking also, my dizziness got worse. Okay. What was that when it started and what is it now? And then how, and my neck is a little more sore. Okay. What was that when it started and what is it, you know? And so you're, you're tracking all of these symptoms. And so a very classic thing with, you know, our students and with residents, uh, clinicians is you ask what, are you better? Are you worse? Are you the same? And they say, I'm, I'm worse. Okay. What was it before? It was a five. Now it's a seven. Okay. But the next, the question you have to drill down further into now is, but which one, which one of those symptoms, these five or six or seven symptoms was the five and which is now the seven. You end up tracking the number of variables. As I, as I mentioned, you may be okay with making dizziness a little worse because you have an easing factor that you know will you can get you can take care of that if you stirred it up. So I'm keeping track of all these numbers and I am being careful with the ones that I, you know, once I've stirred up, horn, up the hornet's nest, I don't really have any way to ease that. So I'm being really careful with those. And maybe my VAS is one. You go one up, that's it. That's as far as we're going. Whereas these others, like dizziness, routinely, you're a three now, let's go up to a seven because I know I can bring it back down. And and so the overarching goal though is while not flaring them up to the point where we can't control them, we do want to provoke symptoms to some degree and continue to progress their activity level with the hope being that as we continue to progress their activity level, these activities then become less and less aggravating. Is that accurate? That's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Just to tie that in. So this is like pretty similar to like loading a tendon. This is pretty similar to treating a hamstring strain where we're okay pushing into a little bit of that as we get more functional. That's normal. That's healthy. That's okay. And that's okay across all of our domains that we're in. We just have to be super careful about the super irritability. And that's specific to a concussion where some of that stuff, some of those symptoms just do not bounce back as fast as a soreness would or something like that. Yes, that's exactly right. And then because it's multi-system, we get a lot of interactions. Something that might be good to do to stress in one area will make things worse in the other. And so you've got these competing needs. So as an example, we know that uh, early activation of the deep neck flexors is going to be important as well as the extensor. So we want to get going on those as quickly as possible. But in some patients, that will increase the headache, right? And so how do you get the neck stronger and how do you stress the neck enough or apply enough of resistance or enough demand on the neck musculature to to make improvements there while simultaneously not stirring up the hornet's nest of of the headache that you have difficulty calming down afterwards. So you shouldn't get bored if you're treating patients with concussion. Rob, I I find that with patients with more orthopedic injuries, let's just use this hamstring strain for instance, it's it's pretty easy to explain why we want to work into some degree of soreness, and patients are typically speaking pretty amenable to that. With concussive symptoms though, I find that people are much more hesitant to work into symptom provocation, which is completely reasonable and understandable to me. I really don't like feeling dizzy either or bringing on headaches, and I certainly don't like feeling nauseous. So how do you talk to your patients about the reasoning behind your treatment programs to to get them on board with what you're trying to do. First, there's there's a, a lot of reassurance. We we if we again extrapolate from 
risk factors for acute neck pain becoming chronic, we can say that reassurance is going to be a, a big key and reducing any catastrophizing, reducing any anxiety over their condition uh, as much as we can. So reassurance about, hey, you know, your body's a, a marvelous machine and it will go to great lengths to heal itself given half the chance, right? So right now what we're trying to do in this acute phase is really give it that chance. But if you do that, you're going to get better, right? You're going to overcome. Your body's going to heal. Anything that you tore is going to get is going to get better. Along those line, same lines are really identifying improvements and pointing those out. And, you know, ah, my, my headache still, you know, a seven, you know, out of ten when I do whatever. I, yeah, but you're doing twice as much now as you were before. I know it's still the same level, but now you're going, you know, twelve minutes. You were going six minutes last week. And so really pointing out those improvements. A third thing is, and I think this is really important as well, it's not a linear improvement. It's a roller coaster ride. And some days you're better and some days you're worse. And, you know, symptom one through five, each of those can vary on its own schedule, right? So you could be better, you know, you'd be worse with your dizziness, but how's your headache today? Oh, you know, well, it's, it's better. So four out of the five are better, but this one happens to be worse. That doesn't mean you're overall worse. Lots of things are going in the right direction. So, you know, separating out the different uh, symptoms and then tying that those symptoms to function, tying them to improvements, warning them that it's going to be a up and down road. It's going to be an, a road towards improvement overall, but some days better, some days worse, and different things might be better or worse on different days. But what we're really working on is producing the conditions that allow your body to heal, maintaining those conditions, addressing any impairments that we need to that will help you heal, and really concentrate on the things that you can do as you move forward. You want to be able to go back to playing soccer. First, we got to, uh, you, you're going to need to be able to run. You're going to be able to cut. You're going to be able to walk. You're going to be able to, you know, and so you break it down into the steps you need to get there. So when we're thinking about interventions, you just hit education very well. Thinking about interventions, this CPG had some maybe some newer things. I'm thinking specifically regarding rest. Is are, is there anything else? Is there well, first, could you highlight the difference in the recommendations for rest based on maybe like even when you know, five years ago, we were recommending something else, and anything else in the interventions that are different or new that you wanted to hit on? It wasn't that long ago that we would approach managing the brain injury part of the concussive event with rest. So the idea was if we reduce the metabolic load on the brain, we let it calm down, we let things heal, give it some time. And so, you know, no screen time, no texting, no computer, no TV, dark room, no, you know, going out partying, whatever, until, you know, at some point it varies, but, you know, your headaches are better or what, or your symptoms are better. And then we can start gradually, you know, we can start the program. So becoming uh, very clear that that doesn't really help. So part of the question is, well, if we don't rest, is that bad? Turns out not, it's not bad. The next question is, is early activation bad? And it, it looks like that is also not harmful. So it turns out that, yeah, we can start exercising folks and uh, relatively early and there's no harmful effects. So first do no harm, right? So we don't want to do anything harm. Well, it looks like it's not harmful to get people active early on. 
Rob, since concussions typically present with so many, so much multi-system involvement, uh, who do you, who's at the top of your list as far as referrals out for multidisciplinary care? For the vestibular ocular issues, a neurotologist is probably, you know, they have one foot in the neurology world and one foot in the vestibular world. And so that helps them understand, I think. Certainly neurologists, certainly a, an ENT, ENT is an interesting, or uh, otolaryngology is an interesting field of medicine in that it incorporates, incorporates three fields of medicine, ears, nose, and throat. And so you can send someone to an ENT who's a N or a T when the patient really has an E problem. So you, you make sure that, you know, it's a vestibular ENT. Hot tips right there on referrals. Hot tips on a lot of things today. We have hit on what an evaluation should look like, thorough, multi-system, impairments organized by domain, quick recap, cervical musculoskeletal, vestibular oculomotor, autonomic and motor function of those domains. We went into how important irritability is to monitor while performing interventions, the big change in rest recommendations, and the key points to educate patients on. That is fantastic. Thank you, Rob, so much for coming on to JOSPT Insights. I feel very honored that you asked me to do this. I appreciate the time. So thank you very much. So thank you once again to Dr. Rob Landell, Director of the DPT Program and Residency Programs at the University of Southern California. And thank you to everyone for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm-hmm.